0: It's the end, end of
1: the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and airplanes. Yeah. Many brutes, not afraid. I have a hermitine, listen to yourself, the world, is you only something. Take your own head, beat it up, and I'll got no excuse. A ladder for the clatter with the fear of fight down tight. Fire in the fire, Resistance to the gangs, the government for hiring a combat site. not coming in a hurry? leave the
0: fury take down your neck border problems with that low plane, Overflow, fall, corner, the world, and you don't to your heart. You tell me the in the the pretty sight. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. This is the hour of doom as we know it.
1: And bloom as we know it. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an honorable hour of honesty in a dishonest world.
0: Very good. I can't tell you guys how many times we had to do (laughs) that one over. (laughs) Hi, I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find close to 800 posts, very close now, videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster.
1: I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner. And a certified nurse midwife.
0: Indeed you are. And the hostess with the (laughs) mostess. Together we are the watchers on the wall and we watch it all for you. We're going to find that silver lining in those storm clouds on the horizon. I promise you. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a horrific hamster, our attorney says, Don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this.
1: All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available.
0: Ah, uh, but when modern medicines get up and go is got up and went... Guess what? You might just be on your own. You'd better have some supplies. You'd better have some training under your belt if you expect to deal with all the medical issues that you might encounter in times of trouble. But never fear. We are here to help. How about that? Hey, do you have a tip or two you're willing to send our way? I'll bet you do. We learn as much from you as you do from us. So connect with us. It's easy. And here's Nurse Amy to tell you how.
1: You can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at drbonesnurseamy and our videocast at Around the Cabin, which airs the first and third Wednesday of every month at aroundthecabin.com.
0: And don't forget our other podcast, American Survival Radio in collaboration with the nice folks at Genesis Communications Network. You can go to our website there at americansurvivalradio.com. Just brand new, just a few articles on it so far. But we step out on a limb and we pull no punches as we talk about the current events of the day. I hope you will listen in. We've got a lot of going on here. Oh, you know what? This isn't even it, right? We have no. of course, you know, of course we have our books, the Survival Medicine Handbook and the upcoming Zika Virus Handbook. I'll talk a little bit about that. And don't forget our articles in all sorts of leading magazines like American Survival Guide, Survival Quarterly, Backwoods Home, Prepare, Survivalist, Prepper and Shooter, even Survivor's Edge, all sorts of places where you can find our articles both on the bookshelves and online. Okay, our Zika virus handbook is going to be coming out very soon, and the reason why we wrote it is that Americans don't know a lot about the Zika virus, and it is something that could be very significant. It has been linked to birth defects, and it is creeping steadily closer to the U.S. of A., according to a new poll that found that at least Four in ten Americans know nothing or very little about the Zika virus, a virus that is passed through mosquito bites and also can be passed through sexual contact and perhaps other methods as well. Now, even among people who have been following the Zika saga in South America at least a little bit still don't know that there is no treatment, no vaccine, at least not yet, or any particular way that the virus can be spread other than through mosquito bites. Still, with mosquito season is fast approaching in the U.S., and indeed, it will come. Things are getting warmer as time goes on, of course, And summer. We're going to be hitting that. There's going to be a lot of mosquitoes around. And what that means is that the CDC is expecting local clusters of Zika virus infections in the USA, and indeed, the Aedes mosquito, the mosquito that in- actually passes the virus, by the way, Aedes is Greek for unpleasant, for the word unpleasant, is basically a species that can live and has been shown to have populations living as far north as Washington, D.C. Places like Texas and Florida are going to be Hard hit, they think. There have already been 300 cases, but all the cases so far have only been from people, or at least have been, tra- have been traced to people that have traveled from the Zika epidemic zone down in South America, Central America, those areas. The government is considering, I don't know if you know this, but a field trial in the Florida Keys using genetically modified male mosquitoes. Uh, Male mosquitoes, by the way, don't bite. It's a female that bites. But these mosquitoes are genetically altered so that when they mate with wild females, there's a gene that they pass on to the offspring which doesn't allow them to mature into adult mosquitoes. We've already discussed this on American Survival Radio over on Genesis Communications. This is the first time we've really talked about this particular field trial, which is not being met with any particular joy from local residents. As a matter of fact, although a recent poll found 56% of people in the United States would support introducing such mosquitoes into areas affected by Zika, people who are in areas in which these mosquitoes are going to be Released aren't so happy about it, even threatening legal action in some cases. So, this is indeed a big issue. Now, the Zika virus is also a big issue, though. It has exploded throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. And while adults oftentimes suffer very mild symptoms, if any, there is an increasingly strong link between infections in pregnant women, fetal death, devastating birth defects, and even in some adults debilitating nerve conditions. In other words, the body, in some cases of Zika, will actually attack its own nerve cells, causing sometimes paralysis. Sometimes that paralysis can be very severe. Sometimes it's permanent. It is a major issue. So this is something that... Now, before I go further, I do not want to panic anybody even though there are clusters of cases that are going to be expected, especially in areas, of course, that have Aedes species mosquitoes, they do not expect a full-blown epidemic in the United that's States. That's one thing that's very important to know, that they do not expect the kind of effects on the population that it has had in Latin America, but it's something that we need to be prepared for we need to be aware of. Now... Interestingly enough, very few people actually know that Zika can be passed through sexual activity. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the the cases of Zika that have occurred in women seem to have come not after they've traveled from South America, but after their spouses or their significant others have traveled from South America. And it appears that the virus itself, although it only lasts about a week or so in the bloodstream normally, It apparently can stay in the bodily fluids, the semen of men, for up to two months. As you can imagine, since very few people really know a lot about the disease, at least in the United States, very few people are concerned about it, and they don't think that the U.S. will experience Zika cases at all. Some people actually have been a little numb because we've had a lot of epidemics that have been in the news over the last couple of years— Ebola, chikungunya virus, we've talked about all of these things in our previous shows. So a lot of people are sort of, I guess, numb to the possibility of epidemic type diseases showing up in some numbers in the U.S. Now, one thing that is very important to know is that our Olympic team is going to be going to Brazil this summer and that is the epicenter of the Zika epidemic. So, the question is should we send our Olympic athletes to Brazil for the Olympics, knowing that they might wind up getting infected with this virus and bringing it back in quantity? And of course, the mosquitoes could also be brought back in quantity. As a result of all the travel, not just from our athletes, from the many, many Americans that will be traveling to South America to see our athletes in action. So this is a big issue. And I don't know. I mean, I think that the safest thing for would be for them not to go. However, when's the last time that we did that? I guess once during the Cold War with Russia, we decided not to send our athletes to the Moscow Olympics. But that's really about it. Something to think about, we want to make sure that people have insect repellent as part of their supplies. Absolutely, DEET, D-E-E-T, is the one that's most commonly used and recommended by the EPA. However, you can use oil of lemon eucalyptus. That's something else that you could use. Both DEET and oil of lemon eucalyptus are EPA-approved. Now, citronella oil is not EPA approved, but it is very well known to be effective in repelling mosquitoes. A lot of those candles that you see that are made of citronella, those might be good things to have as well.
1: Well, last time we talked about different types of headaches, and we also talked about some standard medications, but we did not have enough time to talk about natural headache relief. So let's discuss that a little bit. So what would be your strategy to deal with a headache if you just didn't have any medications? Well, I suggest the following. Place an ice pack where the headache is. In other words, if it's on your forehead, put the ice pack there. If you're feeling it in your neck and the lower part of your head, go ahead and put the ice pack there. Have someone massage the back of the patient's neck. Sometimes this helps to relieve tension, and it may relieve the headache again without medication. Use two fingers in a rotating circular motion and apply pressure where the headache is. And usually that's a good place to use the method on your temples. Uh, Lie down in a dark, quiet room. Get rid of stress. Don't have any noise. Ask people to not disturb you. Put your phone, if you have a phone and it's functioning, on silent. If you can possibly get some sleep, that would be really great. And if your blood pressure is elevated, make sure you lay on your left side because your blood pressure is actually, I'm sure a lot of people don't know this, lowest on your left side in that position. Track what you were doing. You want to think back to when the symptoms began so you can avoid those. Sometimes it's an activity, sometimes it's a food. So... Try to avoid those if possible. Of course, prevention is always the best medicine. A, norm, a, a number of herbal remedies are available that might help a headache. Fever-few is an herb that stops blood vessel constriction and is also anti-inflammatory. Make sure you take this on a daily basis. You're going to use about one to two leaves for people who have chronic problems. But a warning, fever-few should not be ingested during pregnancy. Or if you're breastfeeding. So if you're pregnant or you're breastfeeding, please do not use Feverfew. Ginkgo biloba is also a natural medicine that you can use, and it has a similar action. The pain of tension headaches can be relieved if you use herbs that have a sedative or antispasmodic property. Teas such as valerian, which we're growing, skullcap, we also have lemon balm, that's a good one, and passionflower, and we have that also. Herbal muscle relaxants also help. And think of rosemary, chamomile, and mint teas, which are all very popular options. And we actually are growing rosemary and several different mints. Yeah, peppermint and spearmint. So have these around your house. And sometimes you might want to go for those first before you go grabbing ibuprofen or Tylenol or even something stronger. Now, for external use, you can can consider lavender or rosemary essential oils. And that massaging technique that I talked about, the circular motion on the temples, you can put one to two drops of these oils on your finger during that massage. So hopefully these are some things that will help people relieve their headaches in a natural way.
0: You know, we're going to have to figure out a way that we can complete... All of our things that we want to talk about In the same show Because <laughs> now people have to go back To the, the last show to figure out Well what, what types this, of headaches are we talking about yeah. How do I de- identify the different types I'm of headaches sorry folks Well last show you <laughs> we, we have, do have all articles. We do
1: have articles if That's you don't want to listen Yeah um, you can go to
0: doomandbloom.net And you'll find articles Just look up either I think we have one on natural headache relief And we have one just on headache
1: Absolutely, as well. Absolutely So at, at
0: least that now, another reason that people do get headaches could be altitude sickness. Mm-hmm. That's something we haven't talked about really for quite a while. Now, in any survival situation, you might find yourself having to relocate from a place at sea level, let's say you're home at sea level, to a bug out location that might be in the mountains where it might be more difficult for people to find you. Now, when something like this becomes necessary, it's very likely you're going to have to move fast. And the problem is that a rapid change in elevation will, for some people, cause a condition known as altitude sickness. Sometimes it's called AMS or acute mountain sickness. Now this occurs as a result of entering an area with lower oxygen availability and reduced air pressures without first acclimating yourself. Altitude sickness occurs very commonly at elevations once you hit about 8,000 feet above sea level. Now It's aggravated by exertion, and guess what? Something probably you're going to be doing if you're traveling by foot and trying to get up into the mountains.
1: Quickly, right? That's
0: right. Now, although altitude sickness is usually temporary, some people do develop pretty significant complications, dangerous complications, in the form of swelling of certain organs. That's called edema, E-D-E-M-A. Now, edema is the accumulation of fluid in Just about anywhere, if you've ever been pregnant, you probably have noticed some accumulation of fluid in your ankles. So That would be something that would be a good example of edema. But edema in altitude sickness affects things like your lungs or your brain. That's called pulmonary edema in the case of lungs and cerebral edema in the case of the brain. And unfortunately, either of these conditions can kill you. Now, like many illnesses, the best strategy against altitude sickness is prevention. You should always choose your route to your retreat in the mountains so that the ascent is as gradual as possible. Don't attempt more than, let's say, 2,000 feet of altitude change over the course of a day. Now, if your personnel are dehydrated, they're going to be more likely to get altitude sickness, so make sure that you are keeping them well hydrated, especially if they're exerting themselves, you want to give them at least a pint of fluids an hour. And one thing that is very bad if you are ascending and doing a lot of exertion is to consume alcohol while you're doing it. So alcohol is a definite no-no if you're trying to zoom up to your retreat all the way at the top of that mountain. Now, some people may be susceptible to to acute mountain sickness at lower elevations than others, but everybody's susceptible at about 8,000 feet. Now, if you have no choice but to make a rapid descent, you have to closely monitor every member of your party. That is so important. You're going to see people present to you with certain symptoms, and they're going to look as if they either have the flu minus the fever, or they may look like they have a hangover. You're going to see headaches, as we mentioned at the very beginning, You'll see fatigue. You'll see dizziness. You may see nausea and vomiting. People may have a fast heart rate. They may notice weird pins and needle sensations. They may be short of breath, and indeed, that would be a very bad sign because it means that there may be fluid accumulating in their lungs. Now, those will have; those are just people with average mountain uh, mountain sickness or altitude sickness. Those that will have major complications. They're going to have severe shortness of breath. They're going to have severely altered mental status. They may lose coordination. They may lose consciousness. In other words, they will have cough or chest congestion if it's in the lungs. They may become cyanotic. Cyanosis is a condition in which you turn blue. You have either a bluish or a gray appearance to the skin and usually it's not the entire body that does this. Usually it's around the lips and uh, around the fingertips. These are areas that will clue you in that somebody is having trouble, somebody with significant issues relating to the lungs, fluid in the lungs, they start coughing up blood. That's called hemoptysis, H-E-M-O-P-T-Y-S-I-S. Now, treating altitude sickness requires rest, if only to stop a further ascent and Allow a little more time to acclimate, actually, even better than just rest stopping and resting. the truth of the matter is is the recommendation the official recommendation is that you really should go back down in altitude now, if you can't do that because you may be in trouble if you go back down because something has happened and you're in a survival scenario, well, then at the very least you need to rest do not go further up now. If you have a portable oxygen tank, that's also going to be very helpful when you start seeing symptoms of this. So consider having one of these as part of your medical supplies. Now, a medication that's commonly used for both prevention and treatment of altitude sickness is a prescription drug called acetazolamide. Its brand name in the U.S. is Diamox, D-I-A-M-O-X. Now, it has what we call a diuretic effect. And a diuretic effect means that it speeds the elimination of excess fluid from the body uh, through your urine. And therefore, what it does is it helps prevent the accumulation of too much fluid in the lungs or the brain or pretty much any, anywhere else. So diuretics are commonly used for people with high blood pressure. People with high blood pressure sometimes notice swelling in their ankles and other areas. And it is actually a pretty good drug to help you get through altitude sickness there are other diuretics but this particular drug diamox that i'm talking about forces a kidney to get rid of something else called called bicarbonate and if you can increase the amount of bicarbonate that you get out of your system the blood becomes a little more acidic and acidifying the blood stimulates ventilation which increases the amount of oxygen in the body And so this effect might not be an immediate effect, but it will speed up recovery for someone that's suffering from altitude sickness. The doses of uh, Diamox or acetazolamide that you're going to use are going to be 125 to 1,000 milligrams daily. You want to start a couple of days before the planned descent. In other words, if you have planned this out and you're saying a couple of days, I'm hitting the road and I'm going up to the top of the mountain, then you might consider starting to take this stuff Before you start your ascent So if you take it on a daily basis For a couple of three days before you go It might not be bad to prevent this problem Instead of having to deal with it Once you see symptoms Now there are other uh, medicines that do help Uh, The blood pressure medicine nifedipine helps The steroid decadron But the problem with that Although it's very useful for people that have fluid in the lungs or the brain, is that you are not going to find these things in any kind of quantity for you to put in your medical stockpile. They're going to be things that are used only in significant situations, and they're going to be probably out of the reach of the average person to get. Now, when you visit your physician, though, in normal times, you might notify him that you're planning a trip into high elevations and you would like to avoid altitude sickness, and you might be given a prescription for, let's say, Diamox, acetazolamide, uh, in case of emergency. And so this is something that you might consider. There are not a lot of altitude sickness natural remedies, but there's some evidence that Ginkgo biloba might be helpful in the natural prevention of this problem. Now, a small amount of an extract of this stuff has been shown to allow the brain to tolerate lower oxygen levels. Will it work? It's hard to say. It might work for some people. It might not work for others. Just like a lot of natural products will vary in in their effect. I mean, this occurs due to a lot of reasons. Due to uh, the conditions in which the herb was grown, for example, that would be it. And the soil conditions, weather conditions... Those kinds of things do play a big part in the effectiveness of a lot of natural remedies. So that's one that might help altitude sickness, but you have to know that it may or it may not work, depending on your situation. Hey, I hope you don't mind if we take just a second to say a great big thank you to all the various networks that carry our show. I know that uh, Prepper Broadcasting Network carries our show. We really appreciate them replaying it. Uh, Glenn Martin G-Man, to all you preppers, is a great guy, and he really has an awesome network there. Go to Prepper Broadcasting Network and see some of their great shows and their great hosts. Also, the USA Emergency Broadcasting Network. We thank them for replaying our show. Of course, Annie Levo's Shake and Wake Radio and also Survival Central. We just really appreciate you guys, and thanks for all you do for the preparedness community. Also, we are going to be traveling soon. We'll be in Waynesville, North Carolina at the end of the month, April 29th and 30th for the Heritage Life Skills Expo. We're going to be giving classes, a suture class and a bleeding control class. That will be one of the new uh, new ones that we have put together for this year. Plus, we're going to be the following weekend, I think that's May 6th. The weekend of May 6th, we're going to be in Richmond, Virginia for the NPS Expo, hoping to see a lot of the great folks from Richmond there, and we're going to then travel all the way to Irving, Texas, a suburb of Dallas for the Self-Reliance Expo. We've been speaking and teaching classes at the Self-Reliance Expo for many years, and we really appreciate Ron Douglas and his group over there. Uh, at MPS Expo, I just want to say in Richmond, we also will be doing a suture class. And thanks to Ray McCreary and his crew for putting on that show as well. Okay, rapid fire, right to the next topic. <laughs> topic. I'm going, going, just going. Go, go, go. I'm going, going, going. So if
1: you've got altitude sickness, um, you may need to take a rest before <laughs> right, you listen to the rest I'm of this. <laughs> heading
0: to the stratosphere. I know. You know, one of the most common doomsday scenarios involves well, atomic bombs and the decimation of the population from thermal blasts, radiation, all sorts of stuff. Populated areas have experienced nuclear blasts, but only twice in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that was 70, more than 70 years ago. Unfortunately, we have had nuclear events, mostly in the form of reactor meltdowns. Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima... In 2011 is the most recent, significant one. But the truth of the matter is is that there is a great number of possibilities in terms of disasters that can occur that can cause a nuclear reactor to melt down. Uh, Earthquakes like Fukushima, human error like in Chernobyl, and other issues can easily cause a coolant system to break down. And that's basically how meltdowns occur, usually as a result of the failure of the nuclear plant coolant system. Regardless of the cause, the melted radioactive elements are then uh, released into the atmosphere. And this has, as you can imagine, very serious implications for populations that live nearby, but also far from the event, sometimes thousands of miles. And, And the reason why that is is because of fallout. Now, fallout is particulate matter, dust essentially, that's thrown into the air by a nuclear explosion and or a nuclear meltdown. This dust can travel hundreds if not thousands of miles on the prevailing winds and it can coat fields, livestock, coat people with radioactive material. As a matter of fact, radioactive material from Fukushima made its way on prevailing winds all the way to the west coast of the United States. Now, the higher that the fallout goes into the atmosphere, the farther it travels downwind. This material has radioiodine, has radiocesium, has strontium, all sorts of highly radioactive materials. And what happens is, is this material is absorbed by animals and plants that make up food supply. That's usually the main reason that we wind up uh, having. Health hazards as a result. Now, a nuclear plant meltdown is usually less damaging. I'll admit than a nuclear blast. Radiation usually doesn't make it as high in the sky as a mushroom cloud, as you can imagine from a nuclear bomb. The worst effects in meltdowns will be felt by those that are in the area of the reactors. That's why there are a lot of areas in near Chernobyl and a lot of areas near Fukushima which have not been re- Populated and people have not been able to move back into their homes as a result of this constant radiation that continues to be there. I guess the most common issue would be radioiodine. Radioiodine is the lightest element of the ones that I've mentioned, and as such, it travels the farthest distance. And, of course, the level of exposure depends on the distance that radiation or these radioactive particles have to travel from the meltdown. And, of course, over the course of time, these radioactive elements will degrade some, so I guess it depends a little bit, too, on the time that it took the radiation to arrive. In other words, it took a while for the radiation to arrive on the West Coast, and so we haven't really heard much about long-term damage to people. Well, speaking of the damage... The medical effects of exposure are collectively known as radiation sickness or acute radiation syndrome. Now, a certain amount of radiation is tolerable over time, but your goal if in a survival setting or in case of some of these disasters occurring relatively near you is to shelter your people as much as you possibly can. And to accomplish this, let's talk a little bit about how we measure the quantities of radiation that people get. Now, there are a lot of different ways that you can measure them. There are units called Becquerels. There are units called Curies, after uh, the couple, Marie and Pierre Curie, that worked to identify a lot of radiation, radium especially. RADS, REMS, Sievers, got all sorts of different names for things. And each one of these measures something slightly different. But I'm going to call RADS, I guess the one that we should talk about today. And RADs are the amount of radi- A RAD is a unit of radiation that is actually absorbed by a living thing. In reality, isn't that what we are concerned about? An acute radiation dose, and uh, when I say acute, is received over a short period of time, is most likely to cause the most damage. The effects of radiation on humans corresponds to the amount of total radiation absorbed, number of RADs. The average person is exposed to about 0.6 rads per year from natural sources. However, once you start getting significant amounts of radiation exposure, you start having certain symptoms that you can identify. If you are exposed to between 30 and 70 rads, you get a mild headache, you get nausea, and those kinds of symptoms, usually within several hours of exposure. However, if that's it then you can expect to fully recover. If you hit 70 to 150 RADs, you probably will recover as well, but more percentages of uh, people that are exposed will experience significant nausea and vomiting. They may have issues with an increased susceptibility to infection. Their wound healing may be impaired. So once you hit 70 to 150 RADs, you start seeing those things. Once you hit about 150 to 300 rads, that is a big radiation dose. Most people will be vomiting. People will be weak. They'll be fatigued. They may start having a weakened immune system. They may start having bleeding disorders. Burns or other wounds won't heal. It's a big issue. As a matter of fact, here you start seeing people dying. So at about 150 to 300 rads, you could see some deaths. Now, once you hit 300 to 500 RADs you will see A lot of deaths at least half Of the people that You see exposed to this amount Of radiation will wind up dying They'll have Diarrhea they'll dehydrate Their skin will break down Infection will be very common Hair loss this is where you start You've read about I'm sure people exposed To radiation having hair loss These people usually have had three to 500 RADs of exposure Over 500 rads, everybody is sick, uh, and truthfully, death rates approach 100%. Now, you have to know that the effects related to exposure may occur over time, especially if you do not get out of the area in which radiation exposure is occurring. So your goal, truthfully, is going to to prevent exposures of, let's say, over 100 rads, because most people below that, they may have some symptoms, but they will fully recover. So, that is your goal. You might ask, well, how do I know the exact amount of rads that I've been exposed to? Well, there is indeed a little item that you can buy called a radiation dosimeter, and that will gauge the amount of radiation levels that you're being exposed to. It's something that's online, you can find it for purchase, and it will give you an idea of your likelihood of developing radiation sickness. Now, to protect and decrease the likelihood, or at least the total dose of radiation, You want to do a few things. You want to limit the time that you're unprotected. Radiation absorbed is dependent on the length of exposure, so leave areas where high radiation levels have been detected, and especially if you're without adequate shelter. The activity of radioactive particles decreases over time, so you can consider that normally after 24 hours, levels usually drop to about a tenth of their previous value or less. But that doesn't mean you should stay in an area if you can get out and get out of the radiation zone, you should. Another thing you can do is to increase the distance from the radiation. So if you're close to where the radiation event occurred, the farther away you go, the radiation disperses over time and the effects will be decreased. So the truth of the matter is that if you can get away, you should get away. Uh, if I wanted to use an analogy, you have less chance of drowning if you're not in deep water. So the farther away you get from deep water, the less chance that you'll drown. And, of course, if you have to stay in place, you must shield people to decrease the radiation where they are. So shielding is very important. It will decrease exposure exponentially. So it's important to know how to construct a shelter. It will provide a barrier between your people and the source of radiation. And, of course, the denser the material, the better the protection that you will get. Barrier effectiveness is measured in units of halving thickness. When I say having, not H-A-V, but having like half, H-A-L-V-I-N-G, halving thickness. So this is the thickness of a particular shield material that will reduce the most dangerous kind of radiation, gamma radiation, by one-half. So it's the halving thickness. It's a thickness by which you have the amount of radiation that you're exposed to. When you multiply having thicknesses, you multiply your protections. Let's give an example. The having thickness of concrete is 2.4 inches or about 6 centimeters. So if you have a barrier of 2.4 inches of concrete, that will drop the exposure to radiation by one half. You double that and you go instead of 2.4, you go to 4.8. 2 times 4 <clears throat> times 2 is 4.8. Then what you've just done is you have drop the exposure to one-fourth why because it's one-half having thickness is one-half multiply it by another having thickness that's one-half again one-half times one-half equals one-fourth here i'm giving you fractions here (laughs) tripling it so that making it 7.2 inches will drop it to one-eighth one point one-half times one-half times one-half is one-eighth and then it keeps going on and on if you wind up putting together a barrier with that is 10 having thicknesses thick, then that's one half times one half to, you know times 10, and that decreases the total radiation exposure to 1 one thousand twenty-fourth. That's really good. Here's some having thicknesses of common materials. We talked about concrete is 2.4 inches. Lead to get the same effect, all you need is 0.4 inches of lead to get the same effect as 2.4 inches of concrete steel you need an inch to get the same effect as 2.4 inches of concrete soil if you pack soil against the walls of let's say your basement or the walls of your home then that's about 3.6 inches gives you your having thickness water is about 7.2 inches and wood is about 11 inches so So having a barrier of 0.4 inches of lead is the same in terms of radiation protection as having a barrier of 11 inches thick of wood. Okay, so what can you do about radiation sickness? If they've been exposed to 300, 500, or more rads, probably not very much. They probably will have some issues, or they may not survive it. But you can treat the symptoms that you see. Antibiotics could treat infections. Fluids may treat dehydration. Nausea and vomiting can be treated with uh, a drug called ondansetron, which is also known as Zofran. Some people may, especially pregnant ladies, may have been given that for morning sickness. But you can do quite a bit, at least to try to alleviate some of the symptoms. For major cases, of course, you would need have stem cell transplants, multiple transfusions, obviously not going to be an option for you in any austere setting or survival scenario. So that underscores how important it is to be able to put together an effective shelter. There is protection against some of the long-term effects of radiation. Potassium iodide is also known by the chemical symbol KI, and it is a 130 milligram tablet, at least that's the adult dose, that prevents radioactive iodine, the most common radioactive element that you'll be exposed to from damaging the specific organ that radioiodine targets, and that is the thyroid gland. Radioactive iodine is just the most common component of fallout, and it is commonly seen because it's a relatively light element, commonly seen far away downwind from the nuclear event. So you want to take potassium iodide, 130 milligrams if you're an adult, 30 minutes to 24 hours prior to radiation exposure if you knew about it, but certainly just as soon as you know that you're being exposed. And if you do that, then it actually will decrease the risk of thyroid cancer that results, and it's really an epidemic of thyroid cancer that would result if no treatment was given. There have been about 4,000 cases of thyroid cancer so far in children and adolescents that were downwind from the Chernobyl accident in 1986. Now, many people say, well, there's iodine and iodized salt, right? Well, it's not enough to confer any protection by ingesting it. It would take probably about 250 teaspoons of household iodized salt to equal one potassium iodide tablet. So the truth of the matter is a potassium iodide tablet once a day for 7 to 10 days or longer if if prolonged exposures are expected, that's what you're going to need. Now, children should take about half the dose, that's 65 milligrams a day. You would give that amount, let's say, in a tablet to a large dog, perhaps. Uh, For small dogs and cats, maybe a quarter of a tablet. Don't depend on supplies of the drug to be available after a nuclear event. Even the federal government actually carries very little potassium iodide in reserve to give to the general population. A big problem if there is ever a nuclear war, certainly In recent power plant meltdowns, there have been very little potassium iodide available anywhere for purchase, even online. If you have a limited supply, always make sure to treat the children first. They're the people that are most likely to be affected. Now, if you don't have any potassium iodide, but you need to give some, you can consider 2% tincture of iodine solution, also known as betadine. You would paint about 8 milliliters of betadine on the abdomen or forearm, preferably a couple, uh, 2 to 12 hours before a radiation exposure, and you would reapply it daily thereafter until you're sure you're not being exposed anymore. Enough should be absorbed through the skin to give protection against radioactive iodine in fallout, and I would use that probably for about 7 to 10 days. So for children, you'd apply 4 milliliters uh, if they're, let's say, 3 or older, but below below 150 pounds. You use two milliliters for toddlers, one milliliter for infants, and this strategy also works on animals. If you don't have a way to measure, remember a standard teaspoon is about five milliliters. It's important to remember that people who are allergic to seafood may be allergic to iodine because there's iodine in seafood. There may be adverse reactions also if you take medications like diuretics. It's important to note that you can't drink betadine. Remember, you're just painting it on the skin. That's very important. It's poisonous if you ingest it. So anyhow, even though you may not consider a nuclear event as the most likely disaster scenario, it's important to know about all these issues relating to radiation. It could certainly impact your family in uncertain times. Hey, what are the skills that survivalists value most in times of trouble? Well, Amy here, being a member of the preparedness community and a medical preparedness expert, was recently asked by the nice folks over at Ballistic Magazine what she thought was the most valuable survival skill. Now, you were given a lot of choices to pick from, Amy. What were some of them?
1: Well, they actually let me pick three, even though that wasn't enough. (laughs) (laughs) So I did get to pick three of these. Um, Some of them were first aid, making fire, shelter, building, building. Defense with firearms, and to be real, the magazine is called Ballistic Magazine, so Uh there are several that involve guns. So, like I said, defense with firearms, defense hand-to-hand, hunting and fishing, uh, finding and purifying water, navigation, bartering and negotiation, like with a group. Mm -hmm. Then there was farming, foraging, and signaling, and communications. Lots to choose from. Right,
0: I'll bet some of our (laughs) listeners would have their own favorites from that. But what did you wind up picking?
1: Well, the really hard thing is I would have picked all of them. And it seems that all the choices could really make or break you in a survival situation. But uh, the first one I picked was first aid. Then I picked finding and purifying water. And the last one, because I could only pick three, was defense with firearms. And I also did mention to them that essentials to survival include... Shelter building, making fire, foraging, and hunting and fishing. And really, to be truthful, anyone who's ventured into the world of survival knows that these are all crucial to your well being. Absolutely. And so, my answer to them was that I've been learning these skills since I was a child, and I to this day still gain knowledge and skills. And my father was an Air Force veteran. And he made it his duty to teach his children how to survive in any situation. I was very lucky to have a father who didn't place a different set of norms on his daughter, me, versus my brother, his son.
0: So you grew up as a tomboy, sort of.
1: Yeah, I actually did. Absolutely. I rode motorcycles, and we had a lot of fun shooting targets and fishing and camping. And I could go on and on, but I did all of these things. So I did learn a lot of things, and it was a lot of fun. And so I'm, I'm a tough woman. Again, my first choice for the Ballistic Magazine answer was that first aid is one of the most overlooked skill sets for most survivalists. They focus on the beans and the bullets, but leave very little time invested in learning first aid. And learning how to care for wounds is just not as sexy and And as exciting as learning how to hunt and shoot. But the reality is that you are more likely to hurt yourself chopping wood for fuel than to be involved in a gunfight. That minor wound could be just as deadly if it gets infected. So my recommendation to the folks who are going to read this article was to get a good first aid kit with quality items and learn how to use it. And get some antibiotics Sometimes they're available without prescription in a veterinary form, and we have a lot of information about that that you have written.
0: Yep, we wrote the first article by medical professionals on fish antibiotics years ago. A little-known fact for those new to the program uh, and to the average person is that many antibiotics used for aquarium fish are the very same in the very same dosages and even appear exactly the same as those used for humans.
1: Now, the next thing I picked was purifying water. Water is vital for survival. Mm. You can go without food for several days, even weeks. People have been known to go for weeks without food. But without water, you are a dead man walking. So learn how to find water. Look for plant life on the ground that could signal water below. The skills for filtering water and purifying it to make it potable, which means safe to drink, will keep you from getting some really horrible bacterial or viral illnesses with effects that could even kill you. Remember that in the Civil War, more soldiers died from dysentery and other diseases related to contaminated water than from bullets or shrapnel. Most people don't know that. Filters for particle debris can be improvised with layers of sand, gravel, cotton clothing strips, and, say, an empty 2-liter water bottle. And finally... Defending yourself when there's no rule of law is imperative, and defense with firearms is important, especially for women. Our body strength is just usually less than most men, and we need an edge if attacked. Getting over the fear of handguns is really hard for a lot of women. I have consistently told my daughters that guns will not spontaneously go off while sitting on a table or even in someone's hands. They don't believe you, though. Nope, they don't Mm -hmm. believe me. You have to pull the trigger, folks. And as I will tell you again and again, I am a big supporter of the Second Amendment. You have to get training, though. Training is key. Find an instructor that you feel comfortable with and begin with gun safety. After that, practice, practice, and guess what?
0: Practice a little more. Practice. That's <laughs> right.
1: A firearm that spends all its time in the back of a closet does not help you. You not only have to practice with it, but you have to maintain it. You should know how to take it apart and clean Every firearm that you know. It's really important to keep those clean. A word about survival training for those who really want their female partners to become more involved with survival skills, which I personally think is totally awesome. Mm -hmm. Don't force the issue. The more you argue the reasons to her, the more you freak her out that we're all going to die if she doesn't get on board, the further into her bubble of normalcy that she will go.
0: You're talking about normalcy bias, and normalcy bias is essentially when people believe that every day will continue just like the day before because it always has continued just like the day before. And as such, they wind up becoming paralyzed when a disaster occurs, when something out of the ordinary occurs, some black swan event that causes them to have to adjust their lifestyle or adjust their strategy for survival in times of trouble
1: it's hard for her to accept that her children siblings and parents may one day live in a world where daily life might be dangerous my best advice is to start going camping family outings can bring opportunities to get the whole family involved in learning survival skills occasionally forget the lighter or the commercial water filter of course with apologies i'm so sorry honey the whole family will have to put their heads together and figure out what to do. And you have just made a leap towards becoming more prepared for adversity.
0: Well, I think that is awesome advice. Thank I think you. There are a lot of people that... It was
1: hard to pick just three, though. But I'll I think say. a lot
0: of people would pick those three. Of course, a lot of people believe that knowing how to build a shelter is important. But, of course it but is. But you might be on the move. And so shelters may be very temporary things. so They may be very, very simple and you I, may not have to know how to build a cabin.
1: Right, that's true. And if you're on the move, I, I really feel at least the two that I picked first, the first aid and the water, is very important. And then as a woman, I was giving the answer of firearms for defense because if I am truly in a survival situation and I happen to have some supplies with me, uh, I'm going to have to defend those most likely for from other people who may not have actually stocked up on anything or thought about a survival situation. You see that all the time on the news when disasters hit. You saw it with Katrina. You saw it with Sandy.
0: Totally unprepared.
1: People are standing in line or looking up in the sky waiting for the helicopters to bring food and water.
0: Well, excellent advice.
1: Thank you very much. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been The Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. See you next week. Phew,
0: that was a lot.